I fell in love with history as a young child because history explained the world to me. It, it calmed me when what I saw didn't match the reality of what I knew. And what I hope the 1619 Project has done is made people understand the relevancy of history and how we can't ever get past something. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hello, everyone. How's everyone doing? We are really happy to see you here on the tightrope joining us again. This is the place where we engage in rich dialogue and we try to keep our balance on tough issues too. I'm Trisha Rose and I'm here with one of the greatest intellectuals on the planet, Dr. Cornell West. Prospect Magazine, Cornell, has you down as the world's fourth greatest thinker, but you know you'll always be number one in my world. <laughs> <laughs> how dare they how dare they tell us there are three people ahead of you that ain't right that's wrong, Lord, wrong, wrong. Lord. well i'd be a sister from india though i salute her and the prime minister down in new zealand i salute her and the architect from bangladesh i salute her but as you know all these things are arbitrary you know what i mean yeah that's true we don't we don't live for them but it's nice they got you on the list that, at least no, that's, somewhere that's near so, the top so, so so kind and loving of you to, to mention that though because you use whatever fame, visibility, publicity you have in order to try to be a real force for good. It's part you of your weaponry. That's mm. exactly right. Definitely. So we, we have a really unusual show for today because we're going to do a little bit of a mashup, I guess, is what the young people might call it. Um, so we're going to release one of our conversations earlier than planned because just three days after we taped the conversation, our guest was thrust into the national spotlight by a tweet by President Trump. Here I'm talking about the courageous Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 Project. So we wanted to get her conversation out there as quickly as possible so folks can learn firsthand about this critical project, as well as some of the backlash she received even before Trump tweeted about it. So first we'll bring you that conversation with Nicole and at the end, we'll come back with an update on the situation with President Trump and reflect on his threat against public school districts across the country. So here now is our conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones. All of our guests are special, they're amazing, but this is also a super special one. But before we introduce her, I just wanna hear a little bit about what's on your mind, Cornell. You know, the, every, every time we shoot an episode, I think, okay, it's gonna settle down and we'll be able to reflect on some kind of bigger philosophical issue, but it's so insane. There's always something hot off the press. But what's been on your mind this week? Is it's been something uh, burning that we should be reflecting on that you've been thinking about? Well, first, I want to salute you, my dear sister. It's a blessing anytime we get a chance to spend time and try to be forces for good. But no, I think it's fascinating to me that as the American empire undergoes its unraveling, its decay and decline, that there's a sense in which on the political front, we live in the age of Ella Baker with the decentralized forms of leadership, but the empowerment of those slash stone called everyday people of all colors, but disproportionately chocolate. 
But then on the artistic front, I think we live in the age of, uh, of Gwendolyn Brooks, someone who could go through the mainstream establishment. People want to make her the darling of the white liberal poetic establishment. And she, what does she do? She builds on the best of all the great poetic traditions, but she remains rooted in the struggle against the vicious legacy of white supremacy. And she is in the Midwest. This ain't no New York thing. This ain't no LA thing. Mm. No, no, no. This is Chi-Town. <laughs> coming out of Kansas. This is Chicago. You get the same thing in Iowa. We're going to see that mm. in just in a few minutes with our, our towering figure. So that the fascinating thing is trying to remain connected with the best of those exemplars, voices, and figures of our history, our heritage, not to fetishize them, they're human beings like anybody else, but to accent their strengths. And as the younger generation gets in contact with that, oh, it's going to be a new day. Mm. New yes. day. Does, that, does, that, does yes. that make sense, though? Yes, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And, you know, figuring out what each moment requires, what piece of the tradition is needed at which particular moment of crisis is very important. You have a whole lot of tools in your in your in your tool shed. You might have a whole lot of weapons in your arsenal, but you got to know which one to use at what time. That's practical so, judgment. But there's certain yeah. things that's constant. You see, there's a common denominator. Like you got to mm. have self-respect. Yes. You got to have quest yes. for self-determination. Well, you got to have integrity, honesty, right. decency, generosity, courage, vision. Right. All of those are common, but how they are expressed relative to the new circumstances, mm -hmm. that's the challenge. Right, right. Yeah. Well, all the tools and weapons to which I was referring are part of the Black radical tradition. So I had already mm -hmm. limited Ooh, my tools are, and weapons. I see, I see, I see. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't clear about that. <laughs> Oh my Lord, goodness. Lord, well, Lord. thank you for that that setup because you know it is it's a very important time to know what you need to do, right? It's not just, you know, it's not the same thing over and over. It's it's always a unique moment. And Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, I wrote to her when I was a child. I thought she was so amazing. Yeah, right. I wrote to her and she wrote back to me on my own letter so that I would have the letter that I sent along with her reply. And it was very kind. I couldn't believe she wrote me back, you know? Now, you were yeah. in Harlem or the Bronx at that time? I was in the Bronx already. I was about 10, maybe 11. Ten we left Harlem when I was eight. The giant and genius Gwendolyn Brooks herself. And she writes I back. Yep, I oh, sure did. Lord. I just felt That's like she captured, story. I know she captured the spirit of just that sort of energy of, of youth, of black youth and in a city environment, but with a certain kind of critical mind. And I just was really uh, touched and moved by her, her poetry. So, Good yeah, God I couldn't Mike. believe she, she was loved, like, love, love, love black folks. She loved everybody, but she yeah, loved I mean, black folks. I know if I wrote to her, she had a whole lot of people writing to her. So I'm very it, grateful isn't for that her. Isn't that something? Well, that, 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 I know. that says a whole lot. I that mean, says a whole lot it right sure there. does. Well, we have another amazing Midwestern person with us today, as you pointed out, Cornell. We are extremely grateful to have Nicole Hannah-Jones with us, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter covering racial injustice and education and uh, any number of other issues for the New York Times Magazine. And she is the creator of the landmark, legendary, already incredibly both controversial and transformative mm -hmm. landmark 1619 project. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Everybody's got to know this. If you don't know the 1619 Project, that's what Google is for. However, <laughs> um, uh, this project uh, commemorates the 
400 anniversary of the beginning of slavery in what would become the United States by examining slavery's modern legacy and reframing the way we understand this history and the contributions of black Americans to the nation. Most importantly, uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for the essay and the project. She's written about fair housing. She's written about educational discrimination. She's just tackling all of the big issues of systemic racism, especially in the post-civil rights era. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for joining us on the tightrope. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Um, really honored and really excited. I should have gotten my copy of Race Matters out, Dr. Cornell West, because <laughs> you, you would not, of course, have any reason to remember this, but when I was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, I came to a speech that you gave and had you sign my, my copy of the book, which I still have and cherish. So uh, it's just an honor to, to be in dialogue with you and also with you, Professor Rose. Thank you. Oh, Thank that, you. Yes, amazing. I know. We all have a copy of a, a signed book. We're lucky <laughs> no, of Dr. Cornell West. No, no, but I didn't know that there was this, this connection to somebody who's such a powerful force for good. Because no, I know it, you were forced for good then, but now on the public stage, and you are on the international stage, which is a beautiful thing. You're holding up the bloodstained banner, making sure people see the black freedom struggle is 11 in the U.S. Democratic loaf. I'm about to pass out. Just, you, just, <laughs> you don't know how it feels to to have someone who you know work you that admired your uh, entire adult life to be in dialogue. It's just you know. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you both. Oh, we just telling the truth about you. That's what it <laughs> yes, is. You're gonna talk about America. You got to talk about black people at the center at the core, not because of skin pigmentation, because the choices that we made so that when we lift our backs, the whole democratic project expands. And we Absolutely. got all the proof for that. And people say, oh, I think you emphasizing the race a bit too much. We just trying to tell the truth. We're just trying to tell the truth. It's, it's, it's not only that we have expanded the democratic project, but that it not focusing on us doesn't explain why the democratic project was not expanded in the first place. So if you want to understand why it was what it was, you have to come to terms with the question of race and the specific construction of black people as black, African-Americans as other and as less than human. There's no question about that. So, but before we get into all that, we, we have a, a, a fairly common practice and usually Cornell is the person who initiates it, but I'm going to take a little page out of his book right now. He wants to start us with, as I adore, he does this, where you're from, your family, your childhood. Give us some background. I mean, you know, you write so much about educational segregation, but you have your own incredible stories about that. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, what, what your childhood was like, and, and how that might have played a role in, in your amazing contributions now. Sure, you know, <clears throat> classically black people conversation starter, where are your people from? So uh, I right. am <laughs> I am a child of the great migration. Uh, I was born and raised in a small Midwestern town called Waterloo, Iowa. It was on the um, migration pattern that followed the Illinois Central rail line from Mississippi, uh, came up through Iowa and up to Chicago. Waterloo is the most diverse city um, and has the largest black population in the state of Iowa. So everyone kind of converges on Waterloo uh, once every four years. Um, so I grew up in a town that was about 15% black in the city that was 2% uh, black, or in the state that was 2% black, 
very working class, blue collar town. Black people migrated there because of beatpacking plants and uh, the John Deere plant and also to help build the railroad. So it was a place where you could make a decent living without a, a college degree at the time. But much more recently, uh, Waterloo was named the worst city in America to be black. So it's a city that has uh, a very uh, rigid uh, racial caste system, a very rigid racial line. I grew up on the black side of town. There weren't a lot of us, but there were still enough of us to segregate us. And starting in the second grade, my parents enrolled me in a voluntary school desegregation program that bused black kids from uh, the east side of town into white schools on the west side of town. And uh, my childhood was, you know, in many ways, very typical black Midwestern childhood. Uh, grew up around all of my family. We all lived in close proximity to each other. Got a good public school education. My family was working class, but compared to the rest of our family, we, we were probably the most well off. And uh, Waterloo played a really big role in, in who I ultimately became. Every Black person in my town is from Mississippi, and I've written about this, that Mississippi uh, flavored our language, our food, our worship. Um, those connections were always really close, and um, most of my family still lives there. Wow. It, oh, wow. That's amazing. And, and so how did you move from the experience of desegregating to thinking through the critical legacy that it was a part of? Because, you know, in my experience, you have childhood experiences, you don't have frameworks for them quite yet. I mean, maybe you already did, but at least for me, it took a while to put those bigger pieces together. How did that happen for you? Because you write about it both as a parent, right, and as a person who's had that experience as a child. And it's so insightful and you capture so many of the nuances of the complexity of living with that. You know, so how did you come to that? If you have a sense of that, that would, I'd be just really thrilled to hear. Yeah, that's such a, a great question because I didn't even realize as a child that I was part of a desegregation program. I mean, you know, when, when you're a kid, your parents put you on a bus and send you to a school and you don't question why, you don't question what for. All I knew is all of a sudden my bus ride got a lot longer and my school got a lot whiter, but I didn't understand why that was. Um, I was in the second grade. I didn't even have a good concept of what education was supposed to look like or that this was unusual. So it wasn't until I was an adult and started writing about school segregation. My, my very first job out of graduate school was to cover the Durham public school system. And the Durham school system was a majority black school district that was becoming more segregated. It was already highly segregated, becoming more segregated because of white flight. And as a cub reporter, I found out that the district had just been released from a school desegregation order um, less than a decade prior. And I just remember being in shock because I had no idea that school districts were still under desegregation orders uh, in the right. 2000s. And actually, I, I started writing about it. And of course, there's still school districts under desegregation orders now. So as I started just being a, a curious reporter, I started really focusing on school segregation because, uh, so this would have been about 2003. This is a few years after No Child Left Behind was passed by the Bush administration. And of course, No Child Left Behind was based on the premise that we were not going to try to integrate schools. We were just going to force high poverty black schools to raise their achievement by punishing them when they did it. And I saw the futility of that, that you can't have 
schools where every kid is wealthy and those schools have all the resources in the world and then have another school where 95% of the kids live in poverty and think miraculously if you threaten those schools but don't provide them any additional resources that they're going to uh, get the same achievement as those rich white schools. So I began really looking into educational inequity. And as I started studying it, that's when um, I actually came across a letter that the Justice Department and uh, the Department of Education, it wasn't called the Department of Education back then, it was uh, Health and Welfare, um, had sent my school district in response to a lawsuit. And so my own school district agreed to desegregate to avoid being sued by the Justice Department for operating segregated schools. And of course, this is a northern school district. And we told ourselves that school segregation was a southern phenomenon, that de jure segregation was a southern phenomenon, but clearly it was, uh, it was a national phenomenon. That's when I first made the connection that I actually was a product of uh, school desegregation, but I didn't know that as a child. Though I often say it was that experience of desegregation that at a young age really got me thinking about race and the landscape of racial inequality because I rode the school bus two hours every day and through the window of my school bus, I could see the literal landscape of segregation change, how everything got nicer the closer mm. we got to the white side of town, that all of a sudden there were grocery stores and there were businesses and restaurants and the roads seemed to get paved and the houses were nicer. So I saw that, but I also saw how hard all the black folks I know work. And I mean, yep the type of work that we're blessed that we don't have to do, you know, cutting meat yeah. off of a hog all day for 10 hours a day is just grueling work. So that experience just allowed me to see that something bigger was happening and it wasn't just about black people's work ethic or lack of desire that was leading to this inequality. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. You know, when I read your essay that was the um, framing essay for uh, 1619, I just said to myself, Sister Nicole was putting a smile on Ida B. Wells Barnett's <laughs> face from the grave. Right. And when I think of her coming out of Mississippi to Chicago, and I consider her the greatest, most courageous, freedom-loving journalist in the history of the country. Absolutely. She had her own calling, her own vocation. We love T. Thomas Fortune. We love I.F. Stone. There's been a number of wonderful journalists, but when it comes to Fusing intellect with courage and vision. Sister Ida is in, 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 in the world all of our own. Could you tell us how you were able to forge this sense of your calling, both from hearing a voice or the observations that you were making on the coincidence of a kind of calling of a voice and what you were seeing to be in the legacy of the great Ida B. Wells Barnett? So, you know. I grew up in a house, my, my father wasn't educated, he didn't finish high school, but he was an avid reader. And mm -hmm. um, like many black folks, we understand that your intellect and education does not have to do with your academic pedigree. And he was yeah, a great right. example of that. He was probably uh, you know, the smartest person I knew growing up. So he always subscribed to two newspapers. And I would read, I was a nerdy kid, and I would read the newspapers every day with my dad. And when I was um, actually in middle school, when I was 11 years old, 
I wrote my first letter to the editor. So uh, Dr. Rose, when you talked about writing to Gwendolyn Brooks at the age of 10, it made me think about myself. I wrote um, a letter to the editor about Jesse Jackson's uh, primary showing in 1988 and the fact that he had done so poorly in my hometown and in Iowa. And I felt like we should give this black man a chance and that um, (laughs) I actually end the letter to the editor by saying, whether you like it or not, there will be a black president one day, never knowing that all these years later, I would actually live to see it come to fruition. So I think I I understood from a young age, really, uh, how important the press is in creating or sustaining narratives about our community, and that it mattered that we be able to tell our own stories. I started writing for my high school newspaper, about, I had a column called From the African Perspective, and I wrote about black kids like me who are bused into this white school and faced all of these stereotypes because of the side of town we lived on and because of our race. And that's when I really started thinking about that we can't let other people tell our stories. And as you both know, the very first black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, they say, we wish to plead our own cause. No longer mm-hmm. shall others speak for us. And and, and I, I really grasped that at a young age. Mm. So I decided to be a journalist because I wanted to write about black folks and I wanted to write about racial inequality, um, but really the architecture of it, because I think so Mm -hmm. much reporting about racism is just lazy and superficial. And it's about, did this person say something racist or not? I don't really care uh, if your heart is racist, what are the actions, what are the impact? And um, these structures, that maintain our caste system were always much more interesting to me than the hearts and minds of individual white Americans. And I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I came across Ida B. Wells' autobiography as a college student. Um, I was, again, I was, I was very nerdy. So I would go into the library of the um, bookstore and I would look to see what other professors were teaching in the classes that I couldn't take. And one of those professors was teaching this book about Ida B. Wells. And I and I read the back and I was like, there was a black woman who did that back then? You know, it was amazing to be a feminist, a suffragist, um, to be like investigating lynchings right after uh, the end of the Civil War and or the end of Reconstruction. I, I just didn't know black women could do things like that back then. And I have been obsessed with Ida B. Wells since then because uh, she was such a model um, for a modern woman, a woman today about what, what we can do. And also just like not staying in your place. The, the beautiful thing about her is she did not suffer fools and that is very clear. And she suffered for that, but she had a, a moral mission. And um, I agree with you, Dr. West, when you say, you know, she's the greatest journalist because those other great names that we hear they weren't having to write in opposition to their own country. They weren't having to do journalism that was trying to speak to their very right to be a citizen and be treated with humanity. Um, and where you had no one who was going to protect you or vindicate your rights. And that's just a different circumstance than to be a muckraking journalist in a country that, that treats you like a citizen. So yeah, there's, there's so fewer power, more powerful icons. I think she's the greatest uh, American journalist. Hmm. That's, that's that's so, so powerful. Put a bounty on a head. Now, when right. a white supremacist civilization puts a bounty on your yes. head, 
for loving black folk, you're doing a divine thing. Exactly. Yeah. And Absolutely. then, and then, you're doing and a let's, let's not forget that, you know, as a woman, she was also asked to stay in her place as a black woman yes. among Absolutely. black male journalists and preachers and political figures who challenged yes. her right to their, to her ability to challenge their narratives and sometimes their complicitness. So she That's also, right. I mean, this is how she gets written out of the story as a co-founder of the NAACP. NAACP. This is how That's she gets right. written out of the fact that the NAACP and and other uh, civil male civil rights uh, activists didn't even want to deal with lynching until Ida B. Wells made it a, a global story because they they thought it was distasteful and they believed the narrative. So yeah, I think that is so true. And also, I think her her class loyalty uh, doesn't get talked about enough. That when she moved to Chicago. She refused to be one of those black people who kind of uh, looked down upon the Southern migrants who were coming up, but instead started these organizations to really help uh, low income black people. And so, yes, she was uh, one of those original intersectionalists for sure. Yeah, that's mm. true. Well, she yeah. put that pressure on the great W.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was yes, wrong did. as two left shoes, wrong as two yes, left shoes did. when it came to not acknowledging her own genius presence, witness, and so forth. But then she's also a Sunday school teacher, yes. which is to say she's connected with the younger generation. Her heart, mind, and soul is manifest in service to everyday people in Chicago. That's and right. that's a challenge for the black bourgeoisie in Chicago mm -hmm. at that time. And still. It, so, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh, we're going to have to follow through on that one now. Whoa, yes, indeed. Um, but that's the benefit of not coming from a pedigree. I, I don't care. I don't come from a pedigree. I come from Mississippi sharecroppers. And so I, yeah. I much like, like her, uh, I've never believed in these class classes notions of, of our folks. I just don't engage it. And I think that's one of the things I really admired about her. Right, right. Wow, wow. Right. But so, that's, that's now, your love, though. That's your love. I wouldn't even say classes. It's just, I'm going to love Jamal, Letitia, as much as I love the Jack and Jill Negro. That's but right. All of them got the same status. You know what I mean? That's and right. when you look at the world in that way, then you're going to cut against a lot of your black middle class folks. Some of them you got to love at a distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. So let me let me ask you as we we I'm watching the clock because I know you've got commitments and we got so much we want. I mean, we went down the fabulous Ida B. Wells legacy, but I'm also really interested in thinking about how, you know, being a, um, a kind of next generation Ida B. Wells, you've got to do that in the context of a white newspaper. You know, Ida B. Wells was not writing yeah. in that context primarily. And the question of whether or not the loss, I mean, one of the great losses of sort of integration has been the destruction of black institutions for the most part. And the journalistic institutions, right? We don't have easy outlets for lots of complicated conversations in our own terms. And so how have you grappled with, has there, have you had to negotiate those issues in a way that has been meaningful, difficult, challenging in either how did you overcome them or how can we help you overcome them? Or, you know, what, what exactly has that been about for you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We all know you don't work in these white institutions and not have to grapple and struggle to do the type of work that that you feel is true to um, your own mission and to your folks. So uh, I certainly have talked a lot about how, uh, you know, almost a decade now, 
now ago, I was almost pushed out of uh, the industry that I was in a newsroom where I was being penalized for wanting to write about race, race, racism, and black people and specifically, I was told it was hurting my career. Uh, I would pitch stories and I wouldn't be allowed to pursue those stories. And I was seriously thinking about leaving journalism because I didn't get into journalism to just write about anything. I mean, you have dozens of white reporters who can be a police reporter, who can cover county government. I wanted to write about us. Um, the only thing is I, I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do with my life besides journalism. So I, I stuck it out and luckily got hired to come work at ProPublica in New York. And um, when the editor there offered me the job, we had a long conversation and I told him if I can't write about racial inequality, I don't want to come. I don't need to leave one bad circumstance for another. Uh, and he mm. said that's exactly what he wanted me to do. And he kept that promise. So. Uh, since I moved to New York, there's not been a time where I haven't been able to write about uh, and do investigative long-term projects on racial inequality the way that I want to. And when I pitched the 1619 project, it was very clear that this was going to be a project written with the type of language and reporting and perspective that I felt it needed to have and that we weren't going to try to soften it up uh, for our readership or to try to work to make sure that white readers were comfortable with it. We were going to tell the story that needed to be told and, and I had the freedom to do that, but I've won just about every award you can win in journalism and it's harder to tell me no at this point, but I know that that is not the normative experience for so many uh, of my black colleagues in the business and that many of them still struggle to be able to tell our stories and we, we have these moments. I mean, I know you guys have this in academia. So right now we're in a period where race coverage is valued. Um, Six months from now, we'll probably go back to the belief that exactly. we don't need to emphasize racial coverage that much anymore. And the problem with that is, is it doesn't give people a chance to build a real expertise. And you're not a great race reporter just because you're black. You're you're a great race That's reporter right. because- Contrary to popular belief. Exactly, right? You, you have to study right. it. You have to study it and get an expertise in it just like you would if you were covering science or if you are covering politics. And uh, I've really tried to show that this is a beat that requires expertise and knowledge and try to open doors for other journalists coming behind me, but it is still a very difficult mm -hmm. industry if you are a person of color who wants to write about these things. Right, right. Well, the, the wonderful thing is, is that you are inspiring so many folk the way Ida inspired you. So we can see this tradition going all the way through time and space, and that's what's so badly needed, because it seems to me, journalism these days is just so commodified, people don't want to oh, think, think against the grain, they don't want to examine certain assumptions that are so silent, and yet at the same time, we need journalists more than ever. I mean, I, I think one of that, that letter that was written to you all by the American historians, you could tell part of it had to do with the fact that you all were speaking to people that they rarely get a chance to speak to. So that they would think, well, oh, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. We've been working on this stuff for 30 or 40 yeah. years and nobody's really been listening other than our students in our very narrow, isolated classroom. You all speaking to the country and the world. And I think that was acknowledged by my dear brother, who I think is the greatest living American historian, Brother Eric Foner. 
Yeah. Eric Fowler understood that black people, black doings and sufferings and slavery and Jim Crow and Jane Crow and terrorism has been at the center of American life. He understands all the different variables and factors and the primary reasons, secondary reasons. But he, what did he say? He said, thank God for Sister Nicole and Khalil and all of you all put that together because it's about truth. This is about justice. And most importantly, it's about the courage to fight. The courage to fight. And that's one of the reasons why Ida's spirit is so important. She did, did, she did just right. It was a form of weaponry, but it was still concerned about the complexity of things and it always had an appreciation of beauty. You can't come from Mississippi and not have a love of beauty. Because mm. that's what we have in the face of terrorism. Mississippi is yes. a terrorized place, and we, but Mississippi produced beauty from the Delta. Beauty with Aretha's father and herself. Beauty when it comes to uh, Lester Young, born in Mississippi. We can go on and on and on. And so it is with Sister Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mississippi mm. roots generating beauty on the page. Your writing is so beautiful. That's true. In addition to the truth-telling. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's a beautiful thing. There's a profound grace and critical thinking. Usually those things are, are not related to each other. So intertwine so, right, so beautifully, right. you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But let, let's back up a minute, Cornell, because you just mm -hmm. launched into the historian's critique of 1619 and people who may not be on the inside of like, well, how could anybody do that? Nicole, just very briefly walk us through for the sake of some listeners who may not be deep in, you know, academic critique, <laughs> um, you know, what, what happened? You wrote 1619 and then, you know, what happened just from your perspective? Sure. So, I mean, let me just start by saying that one does not produce a project in the New York Times that argues we should consider 1619 our true founding, that Black Americans are our true founding fathers, and that America would not be America without slavery, and not expect that you're going to get some pushback. So, of course, uh, we were making an evocative <laughs> argument. We, we stated out front that we were making an evocative argument, and that this was an origin story, but not the origin story, of course, and that we were trying to, you know, tilt that lens to, to take that focus off of these central figures that we've all been taught and expand it out to all of the people who were on the sidelines, but who really built this country. So I, I expected uh, critique and criticism and also when you understand the field of historiography, historiography, or excuse me, historians are always debating and arguing and writing papers against each other. Um, that's very normal. What was unexpected, though, was kind of the the sustained effort to not just critique the project, but to actually discredit the project. And mm -hmm. what happened was uh, about four months after the public pro uh, the project published, um, I got note from. A uh, very esteemed historian, and told me that there was a, a a group of historians who were writing a letter uh, against the project, and they were trying to get other historians to sign on to the project and, or sign on to the letter, uh, trying to discredit the project, and that he had refused to sign it. And as far as he knew, uh, most other historians had refused to sign it. And then um, we were presented with the letter, and the letters. Really, the critique of the letter is that um, the project did not give white Americans enough credit, that uh, it was too mean to Abraham Lincoln. And then, of course, that um, I argued that the American Revolution was uh, 
fought in part by some colonists to sustain slavery. And the letter argues that that is ludicrous and that apparently I just sat down one day and decided to make some stuff up. And that was the main critique. They weren't able to get other people to sign on to the letter, but then it really started, I think once these very, and these are very esteemed historians, historians whose work I've read uh, clearly. Once those historians made that critique, I think it then opened the floodgates of, of other people who had wanted to critique the project but didn't want to appear, you know, racist or or whatever. Um, I will say this: so historians said that they were just trying to help the project, and I would believe that if any of them had ever contacted me to ask for a correction or a clarification or to have a conversation, but to this day none of them have ever contacted me. And even on the letter that they submitted to the New York Times, I was not included on that letter. And even what? though they included, yeah, I was never uh, even cc'd wow. on it. They, they put men who work at the New York Times who had nothing to do with the project on the letter and, and didn't include me. So I think that speaks a lot to the motivation. There is, there is so I, I'm not a historian, I'm a journalist who reads a lot of history and the 1619 Project is not a, a work of history. It is a work of journalism that uses history to inform us about modern America. And I, I didn't actually realize I was stepping into such a controversy when I wrote about the period of the American Revolution. I didn't realize that there's a big fight within academia about uh, this and that uh, there's actually a lot of rank pulling that happens around the period of the American Revolution. There's a reason there's not a lot of scholars, black scholars uh, of the period of the revolution, because if you want to trouble this uh, founding narrative, it's hard for you to get tenure. I didn't know it's any hard of for this. you to get, it's hard for you to get out of graduate school. <laughs> Yeah, right. Forget about so, tenure. Right. I kind of threw this bomb into my essay without realizing I was throwing a bomb into the essay. And had I known that, I certainly would have been more careful with the language and I would have provided more evidence of the claim, which as we expand into the book, I'm going to cite the, the sources of this. Um, but it, it did turn into a controversy. And I wish we could have had more actual engagement around it. But what I came to understood is a lot of this was about the audacity of, of this Black woman and this Black woman who looks like me and this Black woman who looks like me at the New York Times daring to um, make claims that Black people should be centered in the American story. And so some of the critique, of course, is legitimate, but a lot of it was about who has the right uh, to tell these stories and uh, a real discomfort at making what I think to be the most obvious argument in the world, which is that slavery was foundational to the development I mean, of the United States. Know, How can you argue anything other than yeah, we know Eric Foner, David Blight, you know, these very esteemed historians um, have made these arguments, of course, right? Um, but it was me and it was making it in the New York Times. And it was, I think, if, you know, if the 1619 Project had been a dud, if it published and no one cared, um, that's right. These historians yeah, would not right. have written, right? But it was the fact that it did it did blow up and it did have people talking about and thinking about um, the the mythology of America and the nationalistic right. way we've been taught this history, and that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Which told yeah, me that absolutely. we did exactly what we um, were supposed to be doing. Exactly. And exactly. And, the, and the irony is, is that a lot of those white brothers. Gordon Woods, my dear brother Sean Williams, and others, when they first came out with their scholarship, it was controversial too, because they made they had their own breakthroughs and insights and what have you. But then 
here you come along synthesizing their work and then yes. making it palpable in a subtle way to a large audience. And of course, you, your, your counter letter said, I want dialogue, of course, I, I'm open to correction. This is, this is a Socratic spirit, but it's not Socratic spirit on their part. If they no. can't even list your name yeah. as part of the oh. dialogue itself when you wrote to Dern thing. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's like, no. see that level no, that... Of, of hypocrisy is just so unsettling. But the crucial thing is they are not the point of reference. You learn from them, you listen from them, but your spirit comes from Mary Lou Williams, Sarah Vaughn, Reza Franklin, Toni Morrison, Gwendolyn Brooks. That's the point of reference because they had to go through the same thing relative to their own context in order to tell their truth, in order to bear their witness. And that's the important thing I, I would like to convey to you just as an older, older brother. You know what I mean? Because we got yeah. a young sister coming out of Waterloo telling the truth. <laughs> And you know, yeah, definitely. I'm glad you emphasize that, Cornell. I just want to reiterate two things. One is um, the profound level of disrespect that I interpret their refusal to even name you in the face of their critique is really unacceptable. And it's a fundamental breaking with the tenets of academic protocol because you can't critique a mother freaker you don't name okay <laughs> that's right you that's you just exactly can't right. do it you shut the that's heck up exactly right if you if you got something to say you don't like what i said you got to name me right now this the Absolutely. fact that they put a whole bunch of white men in into the story who weren't even in the story tells you just everything you need to know it actually undermines everything they could possibly say because they know they were ignoring you if you had been a white man writing that, they would have critiqued you for sure. I'm not saying they wouldn't have disagreed, but they would have disagreed with a level of respect and a level of parity that would have simultaneously elevated you as an interlocutor in relationship to them. And that's precisely what they wanted to avoid. So why Cornell is emphasizing why it's important for you to recognize that, as Ida B. Wells had to recognize too, that this is not even about you right? Yes. This is really about That's their, right. about their illness, right. their problems, right? And their, their elitism and their, their investment in myth-making. Because if it was just an intellectual debate, they would have said, come on, Nicole, let's That's come right. to Yale, come to Harvard, come to wherever. We're going to have a discussion and a debate and go through it. Or we're just going to have dinner, as people are want to do, I hear, right? You disagree <laughs> and talk it through. So this is very important. It's not just the content of the critique. It's the form and the intention and the disrespect. And you know, that, that really, I, I can't tell you how much that, that disturbs me because anyway, let me not even go back down that road because I could be here, you'll be gone. You'll be all signed off at home. I'll be still talking. I'll be like, Cornell would be less than a day. I'm like, look, y'all got to cut this nonsense out. I'll be all by myself, but. No, no see, we need to make I'm sure you stay you. on that tight rope. We want you to stay on that tight rope. <laughs> Don't get discouraged. Always be yes. open, just like a jazz woman and a blues woman, right? But, right? but at the same time, you got your own calling. You got work to do. Right, but you, you have changed. Focus right on that. Yeah, well, she's writing the book, so she's ready. She's gonna have her footnotes oh, together, and, oh, and not to right, mention, right. not to coming. mention, the, the New York Times doesn't let you write a piece like that without fact checking you from here yeah. to Chicago and back. You gotta That's be true. fact checked. Like you can't even say one sentence without fourteen fact checkers. Trust so, me, we had. 
so many fact checkers and, and have, went over every single thing in the story. And I was hyper aware that people would be looking for errors as a means to discredit. So yeah, we absolutely did. And, and if I seem calm, Dr. Rose, it's only because I've, you know, I've been dealing with this for a year now. So yeah. all of those kind of heavy emotions, trust me, I, I've gone through and if you see me yeah. on Twitter, it's, it's, it's come out on Twitter uh, sometimes. Yeah. But the thing that uh, I think really fortified me were two things. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of academics who had critiques about various parts of the project. Of course you would, you know, you wouldn't write things the same way that I would write or that uh, Dr. Muhammad would write or any of the people who, who wrote that. And that's natural. I think that is what academia that's is. Um, but they would not sign that letter. And they wouldn't sign the letter because they didn't think the letter was in good faith. Even if they did have criticisms of it, they would not sign it. And I think that that speaks to the profession as a whole. And I, I really appreciated that. And the other thing is black academics, the way that black academics rose in support of me and the work and like, I can't tell you how many emails and letters and like calls I got uh, from black academics who really had my back and, and in some really low moments when people make criticisms like this i think they sometimes don't understand how personal this work is if you're a black person and yes. and, and how much you put of your spirit mm. and your soul you put into this work and it's easy to just publish a dig somewhere um, without having to to connect with that humanity and that pain um but black academics got that and and that really helped me to get through um and that same kind of like anger that that you've exhibited, Dr. Rose, even though I'm sure, you know, no, the project is not perfect. No project is ever going to be perfect. But but that sense of like what the attack was really about, um, it was it was people like you all that that helped me, you know, get through some of the darker times. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that that's the case, because you not only transformed the sense of the beginning and and of course you know maybe 1619 isn't a perfect beginning right there might be reasons to argue it but we know that it is a critical moment it's a formative moment and you're able to narrate that trajectory not to just a handful of elite students who go to a couple of elite schools but to everyday people who can now talk about 1619 as if it's a historical landmark right and so how much frustration can that give to people who have dedicated their <laughs> lives to ignoring that fact uh, and hoping others would ignore it too. So we definitely salute you as, as Cornell is, is one, that's his phrase. You know, and I'm just borrowing it. it. Just borrowing with it. People hitting the street. Of yeah, all no, Pete, you're disproportionately right. Chocolate. People hitting the street at the same time. Then you got the neo-fascist gangster in the White House so that, <laughs> democracy could actually end because it couldn't come to terms with white supremacy. Its exactly. foundation was white supremacist at the very beginning. So what is being verified in real time is acknowledged on the page with your pen. Right. Yes. I couldn't have I couldn't have written it better if I tried. I mean if anyone wanted to doubt the arguments of of the 1619 project the season we're in right now i think clearly proves the entire thesis and yep. people would want us to believe that the moment we're in is the exception and that i think is what really bothered some of those historians who who need to believe in yeah. this idea that we founded on a good and we are a good an exceptional nation who just sometimes does the wrong thing
But this project was saying, and this is the role Black people are being asked to be in right now. We're still being asked to save democracy. We're still yep. being asked to be the one, oh, yeah. a 13% minority in this country, to save this country from itself. It is a role we right. have always played. And the only way you can say that the project is not patriotic is if you don't think Black people are real Americans. Because otherwise, right. um, we're the ones who actually believed in this. Right. And still right. do. Mm. Right. Not only going, believe going in it, but going back to your father's flag, going back to your father's flag at the very right. beginning of that essay. That, right. I can see right. it waving right there in Waterloo. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So I know I I know you have to go. I feel like yes. this time we got to have a second episode with you. Yeah, if yeah, you're yeah, open right. to you it. You got to come back. You got to come because back. Because we, so I don't, I've, I had a whole list of things to talk about. We just done. <laughs> I think we're on number two. We're on Ooh, question number Lord. two. Um, I know you have to run, but are there yes. any closing thoughts you want to share or anything that you wished we had gotten to because I might have gotten on my soapbox too long and taken up no, too much time? Is there is no, there anything that right. uh, you right. want to share before you go? Yeah, just one, just again, thank you for the dialogue. I'm just an admirer of you both so much. And, and, and I just loved having the conversation. I, I wish we were like in the room together, but you know, one day, hopefully. Um, and the only other thing I'll say is, I fell in love with history as a young child because history explained the world to me. It, it calmed me when what I saw didn't match the reality of what I knew to study history and see, oh, this is intentional. Oh, this was constructed. And, and to be able to have the lexicon to describe the lived reality of today based on this historical facts is why I fell in love with history. And, and what I hope the 1619 Project has done is made people understand the relevancy of history and how we can't ever get past something. It's always impacting us. It's always shaping uh, the society we live in today. And to ignore that then is to mean that we don't really want to deal with why we are as we are and therefore we can't fix it. So I encourage everyone to study history. And if you need a history light, uh, plug into 1619. Mm. Definitely. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you Wonderful. so much, Nicole Hannah-Jones. We're, we're inspired by you. And, uh, you know, yes, indeed. And, you know, you've changed, you know, probably the, the graduate reading lists of history department <laughs> exams for a number of decades and uh, it, for the better. And we're, we're thrilled for what you're doing. You come back. We definitely have to have a part two if you're game because- Yep, have me back. I'll be more than all happy right, to continue right, we'll the dialogue. All right, we'll reach out for sure. All right, thank you so much for joining us on the tightrope. Love you and respect you. Stay strong now. Thank you, same. Wow, what an incredible conversation. Now, as we said before, we recorded that conversation on Thursday, September 3rd. On the following Sunday, September 6th, President Trump retweeted someone's rant about California, including the 1619 Project in their educational programming in public schools. And Trump added the threat, quote, the Department of Education is looking at this. If so, they will not be funded. And just in case his base that he's pandering to didn't get the message, he doubled down the next day in a press conference. Now, it's pretty clear that defunding public schools because of what they teach is a violation of the Every Student Succeeds Act. But Cornell, I mean, what do you make of the way Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project has become the focus of the president's ire? How, what impact do you think this will have and what do you think's underneath it? I think in, in so many ways, anytime a neo-fascist gangster in the White House is trashing you, it's a compliment. 
because it means that you got something to do with the truth. You see, he's addicted to lies. He's afraid of the truth. And Sister Nicole is simply saying, let us tell the truth about our past and how it relates to our present. And the condition of truth is to allow the suffering to speak. So we're going to make sure that those who have been suffering since 1619 have a voice. And of course, she's focused primarily on black folk, but she would include indigenous peoples and workers and women and others. And so in that, in that regard, you know, Trump is just being consistent. You know, his addiction to lies, like addiction to crack cocaine, generates a certain kind of consistency. So we just have to come to her defense, the defense of the truth and justice, but also defense of her personally, also defense of all of those who work with her and say, no, our precious children deserve to be exposed to fundamental truths that have been hidden and concealed in, in school and in their curriculum. It's so true. I mean, I can think of my own public school and even private school education, and I learned virtually nothing. It wasn't until I got to Yale and had the blessing of African-American studies, which itself was a critical intervention in higher education, that I had any real sense of the depths of slavery, you know, and reading Sterling Stuckey and reading Al Rabito and yeah. reading others oh, yeah. on just the existence of, of, of slavery as a major shaping force in, in the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that people don't get caught up in this obsession that he uh, has and that they ask themselves, do they know enough about slavery and do they know enough about the legacy and its impact from their own public educational background? And the answer to that, more often than not, is going to be absolutely not. That's true. That's true. There is a willful ignorance. There is a chronic blindness when it comes to truth itself in too much of American culture, too much of American education, too much of American society. Yeah. You know, the other thing I think we lose sight of is that, oh, we don't lose sight of it, but because I know you don't. Um, but I know that, you don't either. I know yeah, you okay, don't either. I'll take it. I'll, I think we both are attuned to this. You know, Nicole is a single journalist, right? This idea of you want to bring the whole Department of Education down on a person, you know, and just the strong arm terrorism that I think it represents. You know, I mean, of course it happens to be illegal, but it's the it only is illegal right now. We don't know if it'll always be illegal for him to do this. And the threat is is a very serious one to bring the, the weight of the federal government onto some, you know, someone's curricular efforts. I mean, I worry about the impact this can have and the chilling effect of this of this kind of behavior. Mm. Well, I mean, again, that's that's what fascism is all about, you know, trying to right. steal a deep, deep fear uh, to try to intimidate people. But wonderful things about Sister uh, Nicole, she's got a number of wonderful things about her, is that she knows she comes out of a family, a community, a tradition, right. and a people who stand with her and will stand with her as we will. And in that sense, right. we never want her to think that she's isolated and deracinated with no roots, no anchor, no foundation. She's standing on this wave in an ocean. And, mm -hmm. uh, and no, not one neo-fascist gangster can stand in the face of that wave as it no. escalates and intensifies. That's right. We call that a wipeout. He's going to wipe out on that wave. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, but I, the other thing is that 
there's no question she stands on that tradition, Cornell. But also, to be you know fair, there are lots of other groups of people who also want to know this history, right? I, and I think right. young oh, people, right? I mean, in a so in other words, this isn't a racial polarization question. That's what he's trying to turn it into. That's but that's true, not we talk what about it truth. is at all. We talk about truth, and we talk about fairness and justice. Right. Period. Be any yeah. color, sexual orientation, national identity, interested in truth. Then you have to come to terms with the 1619 Project. Vincent yep. Justice, you have to come to terms with the 1619 Project. 1619 Project is not free of whatever limitations. Every project has its own limitations, but its basic orientation is to tell some deep fundamental truths that most Americans, past and present, just don't want to hear. Especially right. most white, vanilla brothers and sisters just don't want to hear. Right. Well, that, you know, what they're doing is cultivating a particular kind of whiteness, a kind of whiteness that equates its own tradition with a certain kind of domination. And they want to celebrate this notion of domination under the rubric of tradition, rather than interrogating what is a beautiful thing about the tradition of early democracy and what were gross failures of, of humanity. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense unless you see that whole picture. So doubling down in this way and collapsing, right, the tradition with that domination is a very dangerous and common practice, as you pointed out in fascism. So I just want to encourage people who might be on the fence on these issues to recognize that this isn't the only kind of whiteness one has in the world to choose from. That's, that's a very important point. And you said it with eloquence once again, that is so true, that what really sits at the center of what he's talking about is the denial of the full-fledged humanity of black people. Right. And, uh, and white brothers and sisters can embrace that full-fledged humanity, the way a whole host of white people who've been part of the black freedom struggle have, or white people can choose to live in denial. And, and he's part of the denial, the party of denial. Yep, yeah, yep, definitely. So I guess, yeah, it's been a busy week. It's been a busy week and uh, that's what's been happening for the most part. Um, and you know, we know that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones is grappling with. She has had a tough year as she talked about and uh, you know, we support her and, you know, I'm hoping that all the school districts around the country find a way to incorporate the 1619 Project or some other curriculum like it that expands and educates so that we can figure this thing out because we're not going to figure it out with lies, with polarization, and with the fomentation of hate. It's not going to work. Um, but in addition to that conversation with her, uh, we also recorded an office hours about reparations, and we want to leave you with that today. But let's jump right in. We're going to talk at least for a little while about reparations. Reparations, far too big of a topic to cover in office hours. So, so we're going to cover some of it today. Maybe we'll continue on in the future. But reparations, extremely hot button issue for many reasons. And I'm going to just turn it over to uh, Professor West to lead us off. And we're going to just deal with a few key issues. What are they? You know, should we have them? What are the things that people are against when they're when they say they're against reparations? What are people? What are black people looking for when they ask for reparations? Go ahead, Doc. What do you got? Mm -hmm. Well, one is that I think anytime you're talking about reparations in the United States as it relates to the vicious legacy of white supremacy, that you're talking about one of the most difficult, delicate, in some ways explosive issues. And yet, if we don't come to terms with it, America will never be able to engage in any kind of decent treatment of black 
people. Now, there's no doubt that in the last, oh, four or five years, it's really been Ados. It's been Sister Yvette Cornell. It's been Brother Antonio Moore who have put this on the agenda with local branches all around the country. It's been the scholarship of William Darity and Sister Kirsten Mullen, that wonderful book from here to, to equality and the history of reparations all the way into the 21st century. The echoes of Queen Mother Moore, the echoes even further back of Callie House, who was one of the great pioneers in talking about reparations. But Marianne Francis Berry wrote a magnificent book about all the way through in Cobra. And I was blessed to work with Randall Robinson in the, in the 1990s, early part of the 20th century, Charles Ogletree as part of the reparation committee with Danny Glover and others. What are we talking about? We're talking about truth and justice. We're talking about acknowledgement and redress in the language of Doherty and Mullen. And what does it mean to acknowledge what actually happened? What is, what is the truth of America in terms of the treatment of the government vis-a-vis African, enslaved Africans, black people under Jim Crow, Jane Crow, present day discrimination and degradation of black honor and black humanity. And what kind of redress, what, what kind of justice? Just like tort law, right? You got, you got damaged and what kind of response to the damage? Financial, institutional, what mm-hmm. are the ways in which some kind of redress can take place? And we're at, now at a moment, the California now has just passed a new bill, serious study. Uh, in Congress, and I want to give Brother Coates, Donahese Coates's essay, The Case of Reparation. He, that, that was a very important intervention in terms of this movement. Yes. And I think that uh, we're in a new space, we're in a new zone. And I think the fundamental issue for me is when you look at the fact that over 50% of precious Black folk in America have less than zero in terms of their wealth, mm-hmm. that reparations becomes a survival issue. A survival. How will black people ever gain access to wealth, capital, credit, and so forth? For the black middle classes, that's a different kind of question because we, many of us have jobs, many of us have some kind of financial stability. But when you talk about the bottom 55%, 60% who have absolutely nothing, mm. then these regular mechanisms are not going to do it. So there's two, there's two rails. As citizens, I think all citizens ought to have Medicare for all. All citizens ought to have jobs with a living wage. All citizens ought to have high quality education and so forth. But then as black folk, as sub-citizens, anti-citizens, whose very labor was the precondition of any conception of American citizenship, what kind of redress, what kind of uh, uh, justice accrues to them? And that's what the real challenge is. And it's on the move. That movement is on the move. There's no stopping it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, you you set the stage as always so brilliantly. I mean, you know, one of the things I'd want to emphasize for people who might be skeptical about reparations or wondering why should we pay for slavery, right? You know, what, what can we do about that is to really keep in mind that what happens, what begins with slavery continues pretty much until the present, which is the ways in which African-Americans are not simply not included, but excluded from a variety of projects and economic redistribution efforts that privileged whites. That is to say, that gave them additional resources and additional opportunities. I mean, we go all the way back to 40 acres and a mule, but then we have the Homestead Act, you know, the FHA loans that were denied to black people for redlining, Social Security, which excluded domestic workers and and farm workers largely so that it could exclude Southern blacks. 80% of black women were domestic workers when Social Security passed. So there's, you know, you can't get Social Security and you 
you can't accumulate Social Security benefits if you are a domestic worker. The GI Bill, you know, again, another government program designed to create home ownership for uh, returning GIs, allowed states to specifically exclude whoever they wanted to exclude so that states' rights would govern the, the hierarchy of race, right, and make sure that very few Black people could access the kind of wealth building that home ownership produced. Um, and then all of the ways in which affirmative action functioned for whites all along helped accumulate these assets. So when you say reparations, one does not mean, you know, we're just gonna pay you for slavery. It means that we have spent the vast majority of the entire project of the founding of the nation up till the present actually extracting resources from black people and making sure that things given out to other people are not given out. So it's like you go to the you go to a um, a blackjack dealer and there's five players at the table and they keep going around giving cards except the black person playing doesn't get no cards. They can't even have any cards to play. And then they want to say, well, what do you want? We just want a couple of cards. Mm -hmm. well, well, don't look, I wasn't the dealer here who left you out the last time. Don't blame me, but you're still sitting there with no cards. Um, so sure. it's important because people sure. love to sort of imagine that it's some debt that can never be paid Just that's not connected, back. right? But it's, it's up until right now in all of those policy ways and many others. Um, yeah, so, that you know. So now the there's three different pillars that we're talking about, right? You're mm -hmm. talking about slavery. You're talking mm -hmm. about Jim Crow, Jane Crow terrorism. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about ongoing discrimination and ways right. in which black folk are degraded. So you got three different, a lot of right. times when people talk about reparations, they think just about slavery, even our dear brother right. Barack Obama, when he rejected it, he talked it only about slavery. He said, well, no, brother Barack, we're talking about the whole historical spectrum in that sense. And right. in chapter 12, criticisms and responses by this powerful text by William Dougherty and A. Kirsten Mullen, they go through all of precisely those things you talked about. Here's the questions, here's the response. Here's the questions, here's a response. Here's the question, here's a response. And the real turning point in some ways of the movement, I was talking to Brother Tone and Sister Yvette about this just recently. We had a wonderful gathering at uh, St. Stephen's Baptist Church with Brother Kevin, Reverend Kevin uh, Cosby, a black Christian for uh, uh, reparations. And on page 244 of the Dari D. Mullins book, where they said the key is how do you transform animosity against reparations to support for reparations because once people be, have a deeper understanding of what's at stake they'll see that it's not a question of some kind of tribal sensitivity it's a question of justice mm -hmm. it's a question of truth and that's the level that it has to be cast at that's why martin luther king jr supported reparations a lot of people mm -hmm. don't realize that you see no that's now yeah, we know that's we know malcolm did we know malcolm did malcolm gonna yeah. be in the vanguard he, he yeah. you know but uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but anytime black but folk it, be mistreated yeah, yeah. Get back. <laughs> <laughs> but Love you know that's malcolm. the radical Never king that's your radical king that, right that's the you radical know king. that's right Right. That's right. So, you know, it's not a giveaway. It's it's basically an effort. How are you going to ever level the playing field if you constantly saddle a group of people with additional burdens, unaddressed ha past burdens, and then you keep adding contemporary new ones, right? Which you know, mass incarceration and all the laws that prevent people from coming out of serving their sentences into any kind of job, any kind of housing, any kind, can't even be a barber, can't even cut hair. 
um, you know, because licensing requires that they not be a felon or not be a formerly incarcerated person. So these are all contexts of discrimination that right. produce need for rep something like a reparation. So just very and you quickly. Think of it this way. You think of it this way. The Federal Reserve gave over $12 trillion to Wall Street banks. Now, the Federal Reserve is a public institution, public responsibility, the public bank. You can give money to anybody who wants. You can give to local banks. It could give to a set of citizens. Credit unions. But it has to be legislation. It could be credit unions. But they decided Wall Street. You see, that's neoliberalism. They decided Wall Street rather than everyday people. Nobody raised a question. The QEA uh, 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 policies, which gave them billions of dollars monthly for three and a half years. Nobody raised the question. This is the way we get, we, we're going to recover. Recover. The banks are recovering. We down here suffocate. Right. But, but not just that's not the breathing alignment. with the police coming at us. We, 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 exactly. exactly. So that the question is a matter of priorities, as Martin said. And this is why the issue of reparations is on the, uh, at, 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 on the table in a serious way. Let me on put it the that table. Way. Definitely. It's, it's on, it's got to be front and center. So, you know, what's important though, to back to that question that you quoted from a page number, which I've already forgotten. On oh yeah, 244, 244. Yeah, 244. See, this is crazy. I, <laughs> I can't even remember what you just said, let alone what you, you know, what was in the book. But, but the, the question there about how to get people on board, right? What's important, yeah. I think, is to understand that, you know, when we give billions of dollars to banks to bail them out in our interest, right? Because the logic is that they're being bailed That's out to true. protect us. We Absolutely. have to be able to explain how we are all suffering, not just black people, but what is done to black people is authorized all, first on us, first on indigenous people, and then on everybody else low down on the totem pole of life, right? So what that means is that if we're going to be serious, we have to really explain to people that this is as much of a collective process of, of allocation and, and response as it was in the case of Wall Street. So in other words, it's about where Absolutely. our alignment is, with whom Absolutely. are we aligned and for what purpose. If we can have flourishing communities where people have enough resources to, to survive, to thrive, to take their kids to the schools they want to take them to, to make small investments in small businesses, to take care of their churches and their communities, this will dramatically transform the landscape and the peacetime context of living in this country. It isn't just a giveaway. And I think that's one of the things we have to really attend to, not just make demands, Absolutely. but recognize we have to change the relationship between everyday people and the way they think reparations is a giveaway to one small segment of society rather than a transformation of the Absolutely. society as we know it. Yeah. Absolutely. In the name of public interest. Exactly. Well, you know, Cornell, it's good to talk with you as always. Reparations, you know, I would imagine we're going to visit that once again. I doubt this is one, a one and done for such a critical topic. Um, we want to thank Nicole Hannah-Jones for being with us, and we want to thank the team at Real News Network, especially Dwayne Gladden, for all the work to make this visible and make it happen. Uh, and we want to just thank all of you for joining us on the tightrope and being a part of our growing community. We hope you will subscribe, that you'll share with your friends, let them know what we're up to, uh, join us on social media, and don't forget to come back the next time on the tightrope. Always a blessing to be with you, my dear sister, Tricia. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. That's how we should end every time. 